Stay tuned now for Byline Mendocino. Welcome to Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino is a bi-monthly local media roundtable with journalists from our region in conversation about the important local stories they're following this week. On today's show, in the second half of the hour, I'll be talking with Michael Krasny. He's the host of the daily news show Forum on KQED in San Francisco, and he's announced his retirement from the show in February after almost 30 years on the air. So I'll talk with Michael about his amazing career in talk radio and his thoughts on the impact of public radio on our communities. But first, I'm joined by two local reporters to talk about the week's stories. First, Robin Ethley is the editor of the Fort Bragg Advocate News and Mendocino Beacon, a role she's had since March of this year. Before that, she worked at the Chico Enterprise Record and has even done some reporting at KFBK News Talk Radio in Sacramento. Welcome, Robin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's great to meet you. (laughs) And Lana Cohen is with us. She's a reporter for the Mendocino Voice and the KZYX Local News. She is part of a program called Report for America, which places emerging reporters in communities with a shortage of local journalism and helps build capacity for local media across the country. And Lana has been reporting for us here at KZYX since June. Welcome, Lana. Nice to see you. Thanks, Alicia. Good morning. So as we come into the holidays, um, sometimes the news slows down, but not this year. Uh, just as we enter the darkest days of the year, we're also experiencing what feels like the darkest days of the coronavirus pandemic, even here in Mendocino County, where the numbers of cases are climbing like the rest of the state and, of course, the rest of the country. Um, so that's one of the things I have my eyes on is sort of the overarching thing that's happening for everybody right now. But there's also stories uh, that you're both following this week uh, other than that. So I'd like to start with the stories that you're both following uh, that you find the most significant and why. And let's start with you, Robin. Um, what what have you been covering in the Advocate News that, that you think rises to the, to the level of the most important headlines of the week? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I think that... The most important headline for us this week was definitely the city's discussion on the winter shelter. Um, This year, they're having some issues uh, finding a place to host it because normally it bounces around in between different churches from week to week um, or biweekly to biweekly. And uh, this year, they obviously, because of the coronavirus, there's a lot of issues with that and a lot of cleaning and a lot of protocols they have to go through. Um, And so they didn't have a dedicated space this year, really, for it uh, past, I think, about mid-February. And so that left them with about six weeks. So the city's uh, homelessness ad hoc committee got together, uh, you know, very quickly and said, why don't we offer them the CV Star Center or see if there's another location in town that they could use? Um, and obviously, it's a very hot topic. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about it. Um, and the city had an emergency meeting, a special council meeting on Monday and said, not only are they going to look into the CV Star Center, but they're also going to look into the city hall gymnasium as a possible 
location. Uh, one of the counselors, I believe it was Jessica Marcel Hay, asked if they could look into changing the permitting uh, for the hospitality center itself to allow that zoning uh, to have some of the people stay there. <laughs> um, and additionally, they okayed about $15,000 to uh, supplement the incomes uh, and hopefully attract more people because if they don't have the staff, it just it can't happen this year. So what are the stakes for Fort Bragg around this winter homeless shelter? How is homelessness in Fort Bragg and um, how much of an impact does the winter shelter make? Well, obviously it, it gets cold and it gets rainy and, you know, housing is something that's very fundamental to every human being. And so not having the winter shelter this year would mean a lot of people out in the cold, a lot of people hungry. Some people don't know that the winter shelter also feeds the homeless every night. So that's a meal, that's a roof over their heads, that's some care and some comfort that they won't get anywhere else. Um, and I know that there has been a lot of uh, concern over where that winter shelter would be, uh, especially at the gymnasium downtown. A couple of the counselors mentioned that downtown businesses are already affected by the presence of the homeless on the streets and that they were worried that having the shelter there, especially in the mornings, would drive away some of the business for businesses that are currently struggling because of the pandemic. Um, but they assured you know, anybody listening to the council meeting that they can't just hang around the location of the winter shelter and expect to get in. It's a big process where you have to go to a hospitality center or in past years to the food bank and then be shuttled to the location. And if you just show up there or you loitering around, hanging outside of the doors, waiting for it to open all day, you, you don't get in that way. So it's uh, it's a process and people are, are understandably concerned about where it will be because it will affect that neighborhood. Um, but right now, it's looking like the CV Star Center is the most likely place for it. Uh, I wonder, too, in years past, there have been questions, even without the pandemic, of the fate of the winter shelter in Fort Bragg. So how does the pandemic uh, compound the other issues that have been challenging for this homeless shelter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in every conceivable way, right? There's cleaning, there's spacing. You, I think they were saying they were going to have people sleep uh, head to toe, you know, six feet apart. They'll be masked at every possible uh, point except while sleeping. Um, even smoking breaks are going to be affected. You know, how do more than one person, how does more than one person go outside to take a cigarette break, uh, you know, if you can't stand within a certain amount of feet from each other? So they're talking about, uh, you know, how they're going to be cleaning the areas, how many people they can shelter. It's obviously going to put a huge damper on how many people they can take in this year just in terms of space, which, again, is another reason why, people but some people are really pushing for the cv star center because it's a much larger space and you can accommodate more people with the amount of social distancing required this year all right so what are the next steps now that the city council has approved fifteen thousand dollars for the shelter um how much of a dent does that make in the in the budget and what are the next steps to get that open yeah so the city council is sort of acting as a funding backer they're not 
in charge of the winter shelter. They're not the ones running it. They're not liable for it. The city just said, we're going to give the hospitality center an extra $15,000 out of our budget to, it, it amounts to about $4 more an hour for the employees that are being sought. One of the problems was that they just weren't getting enough qualified candidates and they still aren't. So if anybody is interested in listening out there, please, please contact the hospitality center. They are in desperate need of staff right now, qualified staff, people who can do overnight shifts, that sort of thing. And if that doesn't happen, if they don't get the staff, the winter shelter won't go on. It's it's a no-go. So that has to happen. And the $15,000 was sort of intended as an extra bonus for, you know, consider it hazard pay, really. Uh, you know, here's an extra, you know, amount of money. Please, please apply. Please come and help us out. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely a, an interesting uh, concept. Uh, I'm not sure what the city plans on doing uh, if CV Star is is vetoed or if the gymnasium is vetoed. They're kind of running out of options. All right. And Lana Cohen, um, you report for KZYX and for the Mendocino Voice. What are your top stories for the week? What have you been covering? Well, that is a hard question, like Robin said. <laughs> it's also um, important. I the, yes, I, that's how I feel. I cover the environment, and actually a lot happens that could impact the environment this week. I think I'll start with the City of Ukiah general plan. So that's a plan that the City of Ukiah is writing right now and developing at this very moment that will define what the city looks like for the next two decades. And the general plan outlines how land and resources are going to be used and allocated and what projects are going to be prioritized over these next years. So, of course, that's going to have a huge impact on the environment. And a lot of people brought up very important issues related to the environment in creating this general plan. Very passionate residents attended this meeting who are worried about having more evacuation routes in and out of the city, about having more parks and green space, more and wider bike lanes, and having grocery stores in all neighborhoods because they're concerned about food deserts where there just aren't good places for some people to shop on if they have to go on foot. Um, People are also concerned about sidewalks. They just don't think there are enough, as well as where they're going to place subsidized housing in the future and how they're just going to do all those things and still have green space in the community in all the neighborhoods that desperately need it. Well, I think one of the big issues with the general planning, and and it's interesting that both of our main stories this week are from cities, city council, city government. Um, The general plan in Ukiah, there was some concern that you reported about with all of the ideas and all of the input from the community uh, of Ukiah. It's kind of a test of of democracy in the the moment where the rubber really meets the road or the sidewalk or whatever it is, in that how, how will the city practically be able to implement all of these ideas without really the budget for it and and how what does that mean for public input in these processes that are inviting all of this community uh involvement yeah well you're right alicia there was a lot of concern about how people's views are actually going to be implemented there was one attendee at the meeting who voiced that she has attended so many of these things and she feels like she 
gives her ideas and she thinks about it a lot and she participates, but then she just thinks that her ideas are filed away and they're ignored. And when her ideas are ignored, certain communities are ignored and certain priorities are ignored because, of course, everybody has opinions that other people share. So I talked to City Councilor Maureen Mulhern, who actually will be going to the Board of Supervisors in the new year. And what she said to, in response to that is that there just isn't the money available, that people are thinking about those ideas, people in local government are thinking about what people are saying, but that there aren't the funds to implement those things. Then I also talked to Craig Schlatter. He is working, he's part of Ukiah Community Development, and he's working on the plan. And he said that the solution to that problem of people feeling like they're being ignored is to create a plan with fewer ideas. That it's great to incorporate everybody's thoughts, but that it's just not feasible in a small city like Ukiah with limited funding. And he kind of went back to the last plan and said that there were over 500 ideas to be implemented listed. And that with all of that happening, it's just not gonna happen. So he's hoping that in this year's general plan, they'll have fewer ideas and they can ensure that every single one of those is implemented, which he hopes will bring more trust to the community and the community and greater, even greater communication in the future between the community and the city. And are these meetings continuing? Yes. So actually, this was the third round of meetings the city of Ukiah had, and I they don't know when the next meeting will be. But I will say that if you want, if you couldn't attend the meeting or you didn't attend the meeting because you didn't know about it, you can still participate in the city's in and have a voice in the city's future. So you can go to Ukiah2040.com. And if you go there, you can find you can sign up for email updates. And as well, you can go to this map program they have where you're able to put in pinpoints where you think there should be more sidewalks, more businesses, more housing, whatever you're concerned about. All right. That sounds like an interesting way to invite public participation. Just everybody, just put your ideas in, put it on this map. <laughs> be interesting to see how they sift through and prioritize. But um, so I've been, I, I kind of have a, a headline this week that I wanted to bring up and, and run by you guys too. Um, there was a, a social media post this week that uh, it appears that one of the contractors in the sheriff's office who manages their social media communications, uh, someone named Liz Barney, has posted a number of extreme right-wing conspiracy theories on her own social media page. And uh, one of these posts calls mask wearing a, uh, a symbol of Antifa. And it and says mask wearing for coronavirus has no medical value. Um, several of the posts claim that Trump actually won the presidential election and claim that this is a war and you know we're going we're going to battle because Trump's victory was stolen. And and the worst post calls for the assassination of Palestinian American Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib by the Israeli Mossad. And uh, people, if they want to see these posts, they can they find them at Liz Barney's page on Parler, P-A-R-L-E-R, which is sort of a new social media uh, site. Uh, it's called Ask for Liz is, is her site. And although the Mossad post seems to have been removed, it came up because uh, the Board of Supervisors will be revisiting this person's contract to work for the county on Tuesday. And I'm just kind of flabbergasted by the 
the real problem of credibility for the department to have someone managing their online communications who publicly advocates these you know, wacko right-wing conspiracy theories, especially, especially about public health right now. So I just wonder um, if you guys have seen these posts and, and how you think that um, people's social media posts should reflect on their professional credibility, uh, not to blindside you or anything, but it's just one of the things that's, that's coming up that I, that I think is fairly significant for our community to grapple with throw that at you robin thanks um so i'm torn because obviously people have a right to their own thoughts to their own opinions i think the problem comes when you start obviously advocating for assassination um when you start uh advocating for things that are extremist very extremist um and i think the biggest problem here is obviously if she was jane doe off the street you know with a parlor account um nobody would really care much it's because of her job title that we're talking about this um so i think it'll be interesting to see what uh the board of supervisors has to say about it i know some some employers uh you know are kind of not sure how to handle social media uh you know they don't know how to handle things made on a personal account. And so sometimes they're very lenient. Sometimes they're very you know, strict about it. I've seen people get fired over things like this. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there advocating for her to be fired over this and a lot of people advocating for her to keep her job. So it's definitely going to be a hot topic. Uh, it's going to be something that people are going to have very strong opinions about, but ultimately the power lies with the board of supervisors. And if they think a slap on the wrist is enough to get her to, you know, kind of tone it down a little bit and stop and think about stuff before she posts. I've been in the same situation where I posted something and my employer didn't like it very much and I got a slap on the wrist. Wasn't advocating for assassination, but... Uh, you yeah, know, it kind of crosses a red line there when you're advocating violence, yeah. especially against yeah. a member of, the, of Congress. A, it's a very 21st century problem to to have this sort of issue and i think that her job title in particular being a social media manager um you know she's held up to a little bit more scrutiny and a little bit higher standard um and i i would say welcome to the club just like lana and i are and you are as well we're all held to a different standard because we're visible to the public right we don't have post extremist views right uh lana any thoughts about this i think one thing that's important to note is that as a social media manager she, I would assume, understands the power of social media. And I think that should be taken into consideration because when you're posting things like that and you understand how social media works, how people retweet things without fully understanding what they mean, and how much power one tweet can have, I wonder if she knew what the reaction of this would be and what she was really hoping to get out of those. I think her intention should be taken into consideration. But like Robin said, I agree that it's a really... It's a difficult situation, you know, like, again, like Robin said, social media is a 21st century problem. So we're still figuring out how to deal with it and try to find that trying to find that line between people's private lives and their public lives. And it's it's a it's a fuzzy line, you know, and it's not cut and dry. So but I do think that inciting violence is just inappropriate. And it's just more, it's more than inappropriate. It's, it's dangerous and it's not okay. And especially when you understand 
what inciting violence on such a powerful platform could mean for the world. Yeah, it's fascinating that um, in years past, before we had social media platforms, people may have harbored these beliefs, but we never would have known. And now people have this bizarre urge to put it out in front of the world. And now we can see. Uh, and I think that definitely uh, the credibility of the sheriff's department, uh, it, it, it just does not reflect well uh, on the on them to have somebody with these beliefs managing their social media accounts. But um, let's move on. Um, you both are relatively new to the area. And just to reintroduce you, we're talking with Robin Epley, who's the editor of the Fort Bragg Advocate News, and Lana Cohen, who is a reporter for the Mendocino Voice and KZYX News. Um, you've both sort of been here, Robin, I think, since March, and Lana since June. And those of us who've been here for decades, you know, we're kind of used to Mendocino County. But what are some of the, just in the last couple of minutes here, what are some of your impressions uh, coming here as journalists to Mendocino County? How is this place different than, than where you came from? Lana, you want to, Robin, yeah, go ahead and start with you. No, no, Lana, you go first. <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> Wow, Mendocino County is truly a unique place. And I will say this, I am actually from Brooklyn, New York. So I don't think I could have found a more different place to wind up in for a period of time. Um, one thing is that people are really friendly here. And, you know, I just had never really experienced that before. Um, and it's easier to reach people. So that's pretty nice as a journalist. And it's really exciting because being part of a small community means that I feel like I really am reaching a big amount of people. And then I have a personal story about coming to Mendocino that I think is pretty funny. Um, I moved into a property in Little River and my landlord has been here since the 70s. And when I got here, he said, hey, there's a girl, she's around your age, she lives down the road, you guys should definitely be friends. There aren't a lot of young people around here, but she's one of them. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And I went and I asked him how to reach her, and he gave me her parents' landline at their house down the road. And this was just such an experience because, you know, I didn't know that many people that still had landlines, but... With the internet situation, I can see why that would be very useful here. But also, it just felt a little bit like middle school. You know, I called up, and the parents answered, and I said, Hi, is she home? And they responded that she that she had just gotten back from a run and that they would hand the phone over. So it was just a really funny experience that I thought added some, that just gave some interesting color to my first few days in Mendocino County on the coast. That's not how you made friends in Brooklyn? <laughs> that is giving me some 90s flashbacks right now. <laughs> Landlines. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, um, Lana actually and I have hung out a few times because it's it's rare to find another journalist on the coast, uh, for sure. But uh, no, I've, I got here two weeks before the pandemic started, so I had all of 14 days to experience the coast as it was pre-pandemic, but it's, it's just been beautiful. It's been, you know, nice to go to the beach anytime I want. And I got a puppy and we're just exploring the city. And, um, yeah, I think it's, 
it differs from my last jobs just in that it is a very small town. It's a very small area, not just not just Fort Bragg, but the whole area. And everybody knows each other. And that's something that's very new to me. I grew up in Sacramento. I'm not from Brooklyn. It's a little bit smaller, Sacramento. <laughs> um, but uh, you didn't, you know, you knew your neighbors, but it wasn't quite the same thing as, you know, I'll go to the corner store and I'll run into somebody who works for the city or I'll go. I was literally kayaking on the Noya river a couple months ago. And I ran into the woman who does social media for CB star. And I was like, Oh, it's just, you run into people in the, in the silliest places or, you know, the funniest places. Yeah. You're kind of always at work if you're doing journalism. Yeah, you're here. always at work. That's a really good way to put it, you know, and it's, it's a good reminder too. And my boss kind of told me that when I moved out here, she was like, you know, be, be careful what you say to who you say it, because you don't know who knows people. And, you know, you just just be on your toes like it's a small town. And I was like, that's that's good advice. So I've tried to tried to remember, you know, just to keep a professional face on and make sure the community you know, knows that I'm serious about the job that I'm doing. And right. I, I want to be here. All right. Well, we are lucky to have you both. And we're, um, we're this brings us to the end of our roundtable this morning. Thanks so much to Lana Cohen and Robin Epley. Thank you both for, for being part of the of Byline Medicino this morning. And I hope that we can talk with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. All right. Stay tuned next for my interview with Michael Krasny of KQED's Forum. This is Alicia Bales, and you're listening to Byline Mendocino. My guest today for the second half of Byline Mendocino is someone I've been listening to on the radio for almost 30 years. Michael Krasny is the host of KQED's Forum in San Francisco. Forum has become an indispensable daily public affairs call-in show that features live interviews with authors, artists, politicians, and newsmakers. Anyone who lives in the Bay Area and is paying attention knows Krasny's voice and his disarmingly gracious interview style. Recently, Michael Krasny announced that after almost three decades on KQED, he is retiring in February. I talked with him about his career, the impact of public radio, and what he plans to do after Forum. I was wondering if we could just start from sort of the roots of your involvement in radio. And I know that you, your first love is writing, not necessarily radio or spoken word or talk radio or anything like that, but you're a literature professor and an aspiring writer or somebody who wanted to be writing, but you found yourself with this career in talk radio and an incredibly successful and long career. So I wanted you to start, if you would, by, um, the moment you discovered or maybe had the inkling that interviewing was something that you could do and, and could do well? Yeah, we can begin there. Um, and you're right, I'm a professor of literature, and I was for a number of years before I, I guess I use this word too promiscuously these days, but pivoted into uh, broadcasting. Not entirely. I kept teaching because I always had a passion for teaching literature and still do. Um and I was asked to do an interview with Gore Vidal, who was 
a name that many people probably still remember, uh, a um, writer of some renown, both of fiction and nonfiction, a very kind of snobbish leftist who uh, was someone that I admired as a literary figure. And um, the interview turned out to be um, not very uh, encouraging or not certainly auspicious. He was, for one thing, intoxicated to begin with. Um, and aside from that, he had a way about him that was really kind of malevolent, and it came out early on in the interview. He said some anti-Semitic things and said some things that were uh, very condescending. And um, and yet, I, I, it spurred me on in some ways. It, it awakened something in me. Um, I hadn't found a voice as a, as a fiction writer, but I thought maybe I could find a voice in broadcasting. And there was a little station called KTIM in Marin County. It was a rock and roll station, but they were going through a transition. They were purchased by um, some private enterprise people in Los Angeles. And the timing was right. I went there and I said, look, I'd like to do a talk show. Uh, I w- uh, you know, I'd like to maybe have a little compensation. Uh, and um, I could turn something out, I think, for you, maybe once a week public service and a lot of celebrities in Marin. Maybe I'll interview some of them. I wasn't sure on the concept, but it seemed like it'd be a good blending of uh, public service and uh, celebrities. And, and that's what it turned out. I, I called it Beyond the Hot Tub. Kind of embarrassing now. But <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> by that time. Well, it was known you know, as a place because of a TV show called I Want It All Now that NBC did. It was known as a place of hedonism and they talked about hot tubs and massages. And I said, boy, there's you know, a whole different dimension to Marin County. There are people here I knew that were doing good work and important work. And there were also some really uh, significant artists. So that was kind of a launching for me. I didn't realize it at the time because I still thought of myself as a professor and an aspiring novelist. Were there other talk shows on KTIM or did you just kind of come up with this concept and propose it to them? There were no talk shows at KTIM. It was all a rock station and it was a commercial station and it was bought by these people in L.A. who felt that they could make it even more lucrative. They failed. <laughs> they were right about, above, the station was right above the old Marin Independent Journal, and it was very offbeat and alternative. Um, I was on the air before a guy named Doug went who made his mark doing reggae stuff, and uh, I think the only time I, when my younger daughter was a teenager, the only thing about my career that really impressed her was a story about how Doug went came up to me and said, uh, Mike, meet the king of reggae. This is Bob Marley. And so I shook hands with Bob Marley. And that was <laughs> that was a moment my younger daughter was very impressed hearing about. I mean, interviewing later on presidents and ambassadors. Sure. Nobel Prize winners didn't have that much weight with her. <laughs> carry a lot of weight. And at that time, there was actually uh, a mandate for all stations, commercial stations as well, to do some public affair programming. And they liked the idea of of a talk show. So I did a, this talk show on Sunday nights and um, it was fun and I got to meet a lot of people in, in Marin County and people who were doing, uh, like I said, important work and some of the stellar and celebrity people in the world of rock and film and whatnot. And then... Um, right, and I, I guess George Lucas refused to come on your show? Ah, yeah, you've done some homework. <laughs> uh, actually, it wasn't so much George refused. The irony was... Uh, George never had any interest in doing an interview with me. I had a young man named Eric Myers who was contacting a lot of these celebrated people and inviting them. And, you know, they didn't, a lot of them just didn't have the time. George just said, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have the time. And 
I, I personally called Bill Graham because I knew someone who knew him, and he put me through a whole inquisition about what's in it for me type of stuff. And, you know, I was young and didn't quite know how to answer that, and basically he said, I don't have time for this. But a lot of people were gracious and wanted the attention, even though, you know, it was a small listenership, and uh, for whatever reason came on. Just a, a quick footnote, though, about the question of George Lucas. It wasn't George Lucas who refused to come on. I mean, he declined. But I had Eric ask his wife, and I always remember her response. And I asked for his wife because she was doing work with him, you know, at the time, uh, early Star Wars movies. Her name even came in the credits. And I thought it would be interesting to talk to her. And and the response was so emphatically no. I, I think in all my years of broadcasting, I've never heard such an effect no <laughs> from someone uh, as as Marsha Lucas, George's first wife, um, uh, gave to Eric Myers, re- reported it to me. Well, and I'd but love to know if you had, uh, at your first years at KTIM, if you had an awkward phase or, you know, if you were just cutting your teeth on what would become almost like a calling for you in terms of uh, bringing people on the air and, and engaging and building rapport and, and bringing them out. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, a lot of wrinkles early on, and a lot of things uh, that I did not. But you know, I've been a teacher and an educator, and so I felt a certain kind of comfort and presence uh, and fluency, I suppose you could say. And and the the best thing that was always operating for me, and still is, one of the best things is just curiosity and and maybe what you call a gift of gab. So although there were ways to learn about the art and the craft of interviewing and things that I'm still learning to this day, even after all the years that I've been doing it. Um, there's, um, there's nothing that necessarily comes to someone with that naturalness that some people assume is right there. You can have gifts, but uh, the gifts have to be honed. And when people have been asked on a number of occasions to write books about interviewing or to do uh, you know, uh, TED Talks and those types of things, I've always declined because it's it's something I almost do instinctively, and I had to learn how those instincts operate best. The metaphor I used to use was of a bat in a cave. There's a kind of radar that operates, and it's your curiosity and it's kind of improvisational skills, because I always did live radio, uh, that served me best and that I had to rely upon. So you learn, like trapeze artists or like jazz musicians or just about anything you can think of that has craft and art to it. And a, and a little bit of risk. More than a little bit. I mean, it depends who you're talking to. Um, some people require more risk than others. And uh, they're, they're, I, I like to talk to people of all different political points of view and uh, people who are known sometimes for their difficulties, and known for their uh, temperaments being somewhat volatile and all the rest of that. But I, I took pride on the ability to at least attempt to establish some kind of trust or rapport and, um, you know, it served me. Well, that was one of the things I really valued when I lived in the Bay Area about Forum, uh, the show that you went on to do at KQED and that you still do and, and will be doing until February, I guess, um, is that it was it's a it's a huge region that the show reaches. And it's one of the few places in the Bay Area that you can have sort of a widespread 
uh, live conversation, right? So I would hear people from all over the region of the Bay Area, which I considered my community, calling in. And I learned a lot, not only just about the topics that you were covering, but also about the community where I lived from Fremont to Davis to, you know, up into the, the North Bay. People were listening and engaging with the show. And you seem to be able to bring that kind of graciousness and inclusiveness, not just to your guests, but to your callers as well. How do you, how do you think about your callers and, and their role? in the show well you say nice things and i appreciate the the spirit of those nice things um because i always thought of the program as being very much like a community uh interactive event uh, each program so the idea was to make it interactive and uh it's always been that way and i've always prided myself on the the level and spirit of the callers because i think if you bring the level of discourse up you'll get callers who respond on that level and you know i've had my weird callers and out to lunch callers and outliers and everything um uh even prejudiced and bigoted callers and the like but for the most part it, it's it's very much treated as a kind of serious discourse of ideas uh and that's an attitude that's been i think uh in every way i could possibly make it as a catalyst uh, or as the interlocutor central to what i do well, you asked about my attitude toward the callers. They're, they're an integral part of it. And, and I try to, if, especially unless they don't merit it, to show them the utmost respect for what they have to say uh, and not give them short shrift. You know, there are callers who call in and they go on too long and you have to have kind of an inner bell that rings off and says it's time to move on without being rude. Or, you know, my mother always told me to be courteous and listen. And I think I'm a pretty good listener, but sometimes... People rattle on, and you have to be aware of that as an impediment to just the spirit of the program and the pace of the program. So it's a, it's a delicate balance, but always respect the callers and always realize that some of them bring not only great experience but great knowledge. The Bay Area has, you know, so many bright listeners. It became uh, an embarrassment of riches because you had all the people who were at UCSF and the people at Stanford and the people at UC Berkeley and at my home base of San Francisco State, I say all the people, I mean, you know, a considerable audience was built up over the years. And not only university people, but lay people. So when you were talking about labor issues or talking about things that concern uh, folk who are out there, you know, doing what we now call essential jobs or uh, immigrants who have the immigrant experience, I can't tell you how many people, and it's very uh, lifting to my spirits, have told me through the years that they learned how to speak English better by listening to forums or they learned how to be more fluent in the language by listening, and how many people had impact from ideas. It didn't necessarily even come from the guests, but it came from the callers. Yeah. So it was always uh, a value that I can't uh, understate. Before Forum, though, you had you had 10 years at KGO on commercial talk radio, and that was in the 80s, right? That's right. So I'm I'm just so curious. I imagine I, I imagine you at KGO. Um, you started out with one one show a week, but then you you went to five shows a week, and it sort of reminds me of the story of the Beatles in the basement, you know, playing like eight hours a night and just really honing their craft. And I wonder about five days a week on commercial radio, going from you know you were a, a literature professor and then you were doing once a week at a, a small station in in Marin. And then moving up to that five days a week on this enormous commercial station. Well, the Beatles is a pretty high bar. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm a radio person, so what can uh, I say? <laughs> it's, um, 
it's probably way too high a bar, but no, I um, I started doing some fill-in for KGO when I was on KTIM, and so in fact, uh, there was a period when I was doing both. Um, Ron Owens, who was uh, a kind of dean of talk radio for many years at KTO, and has become a friend uh, for many years, and I got to know each other just by accident. They tried me out. They they put me in a it was then a one to five in the morning slot. Uh, and the, the host was a guy named Jasbo, Al Jasbo Collins. He, he operated under the name Jasbo. Um, and he was a guy who did a talk station, uh, talk program, which had nothing to do with anything sub- substantive having to do with news or current events. It's still a mystery to me <laughs> after all these years. And I'm not in many ways trying to derogate Al Collins because he's a very popular guy in his day. But he would, he would talk, he was one of these guys, you know how they say Seinfeld is about nothing? Um, <laughs> uh, Al's conversations were often about nothing, but he get, he had a loyal listenership. And truckers would call in from, you know, being on the road in Seattle and Portland and they would love to talk to Al. And Al was a good talker and a good listener. But here was a news talk station and I went on and I was kind of, uh, I, I figured I'm talking about news. That's what they talk about all day. Um, and a lot of people say, where's Al? We want to talk, to <laughs> we want to talk about nothing. <laughs> yeah, but preference. Uh, that's what we're used to. Anyway, uh, they, they tried me out there and then they put me into, uh, uh, different daytime and nighttime hours, just filling in again. And I was a full-time professor, so, um, I didn't think about doing anything five days a week, but then they offered me a weekend show. So, I mean, this was, you know, not something that happened five days a week immediately. It was, incremental uh and when they offered me it wasn't a five day a week show it was five nights a week uh and i thought you know how am i going to do uh, a program five nights a week and still be a college professor but it evolved and and i finally decided okay i'll teach part-time and i was able to work that out and i'll do a show five nights a week and i did for a number of years As somebody who does radio several days a week, it boggles my mind to think about producing enough content for five nights a week. But you've done it for 30-ish years now. Um, Can you talk about how you stay curious and how you prepare and that volume of content that you're producing? You know, there's never been a dearth of content. If you have a kind of what I like to think of as a divining rod with news stories and you think, this is something that, and, and it's not always, it doesn't always work, but is this something that interests me and that sort of engages me uh, or compels me or ignites something in me uh, as a news story or as something out of current events or just as a broad topic that you think people would be interested in and, and piques your curiosity? I couldn't be what used to be the gold standard in commercial radio. I couldn't be like you know, Rush Limbaugh or Howard Stern or just foment controversy for its own sake and be a larger-than-life personality. That wasn't who I was. And, you know, I realized it, and that's why I didn't really belong in commercial radio. But um, I could get, as an educator, which is really what I am, I could get good conversations going in the classroom or out of it. Uh, and that was something that particularly became useful in public radio you know, I brought a lot of listeners to, from, from KGO to KQED, but it's astounded me how many listeners we've, uh, the forum program has. I don't say this in, with any false modesty. You know, to some extent, it's something to, to, to be proud of, but, you know, the, the listenership is growing. 
uh, through the years, even in the pandemic, it's been healthy and strong and leading. Yeah, and as we, you know, as the country is experiencing this kind of collapse of local media, it doesn't sound like Forum in particular has experienced anything like that. In fact, as social media kind of rose and became such an important part of how we get our news, you incorporated it in. It sounds like you use social media to to build and make the show even broader in appeal and and more accessible. We did that very early on, and and I take no credit for that. that again. I'm talking about a great team that I've had from the beginning. I had two producers for a number of years. One was Robin Giannatasio Mal. People always remember that name because, you know, I would say it in credits, um, and it's a name to remember. The other was a woman named Candace Francis, who uh, is an African-American woman who now is with the ACLU. And they were both top-drawer producers, and they were both uh, they both had real strong suits in many ways and, and, and uh, brought a great deal to the program. And Robin particularly was tuned into social media very early on. We were doing something with the San Jose Mercury News way ahead of its time that was interactive uh, and doing stuff uh, sort of on the cusp of the early years uh, that started, you know, with having listeners uh, participate interactively uh, and at least have the option of not only calling in but going uh, to send comments in through Facebook and ultimately, of course, through Twitter and, and uh, uh, just whatever social media we could avail ourselves of. I mean, if you read the Daily Paper, the, the San Francisco Chronicle, it's been you know hamstrung by layoffs and early retirements and all the rest of that, uh, and people are getting their news online, so they're not reading the newspapers in any way like they used to, and the newspapers have suffered, as we all know. But we, uh, on the other hand, have built up a lot more resources in, in public broadcasting, at least at KQED, and hired more reporters. And that's a lot of that's due to fundraising and philanthropy and uh, membership in, in KQED and support of membership. And a lot of it has just, you know, been the uh, largesse of donors and, and, and all of those. And, and uh, especially a lot of grants and things of that nature. So we've been able to expand and... Um, people started realizing that not only were we a source of news for the Bay Area counties, as I said, I stretched out and I thought, let's, let's go to all of the important stories as best we can, curate them with the fact that this is a global world we're living in. You know, if it's an important state story, let's cover it. If it's an important uh, national or international story, let's cover it. As the years have gone by, particularly in recent years, with so much happening, not only with the fires, but with the pandemic and with um, racial justice uh, issues and immigration issues and issues of um, uh, related particularly to Trump uh, and the, all the oxygen that he was taking out of everybody's room, uh, there were a lot of um, changes in the sense that we weren't doing as many international stories, we weren't doing as many... I wasn't doing as many authors, which was something I loved. Uh, loved talking to novelists. Uh, made sort of a mark by or a signature uh, early on, particularly by talking to many of the great novelists, um, uh, not only American but a number of international ones. So the long and short of it was that um, we saw ourselves as really an important storytelling operation for new stories beyond the Bay Area. And I wonder how your coverage of the pandemic, um, has it changed what you do or how have you adapted to, to the needs of the community around things like shelter in place or stay at home orders? 
Well, one thing I do is I say, after every broadcast now, stay safe. I never had that close before. Right. Um, uh, or that way of signing off, if you will. Uh, yeah, we've covered the pandemic really from the beginning, even before the beginning. Leslie McClurg, who I want to give a shout out to, one of our great science reporters, uh, saw this coming in all of its severity early on and was quite prescient about it. Um, but we had on, you know, some of the leading epidemiologists and we had on uh, a number of times people like Bob Wachter, who's head of medicine at UCSF. Um, and, and that notion of providing service to the community, particularly for a, a public broadcasting um, enterprise like ours that is so community service oriented and so geared toward wanting to bring important information of that nature to the public um, because the public has not only need of it and requires it and has a vast appetite for it as well. So we started trying to cover the pandemic from about every vantage point you could think of. Uh, so it's always trying to stay on top of uh, each of the surges. It's been that way since the beginning, uh, trying to inform and let people know what is being done in the way of policy making, and also, like this morning, for example, we were talking about um, the difficulty that some people have and some people don't have, and so it's a kind of controversial issue. With um, I mentioned Governor Newsom, his dinner at this uh, at the French Laundry, or for that matter, Mayor London Breed of San Francisco's dinner at the French Laundry, uh, or Sam Licardo's dinner with more people that he is a policymaker. Mayor of San Jose was telling people should not congregate congregated on Thanksgiving Day. What does this mean? Sheila Kuehl, Los Angeles City Council member, the same thing. What does this mean to people when policymakers deviate from essentially, you know, do as I say but not as I do, the old John Mitchell, Richard Nixon's attorney general uh, caveat, if you call it a caveat. Um, and so we try to not only dispense information and provide information is vital and let people know you know, the dangers of, of the virus, but also take up the debates. I mean, there was a serious, extraordinary debate about, and there still is, about mask wearing. Um, you know, most people say, well, it's not a debate anymore, but in some people's minds it is. And uh, it, I think it's important to hear from both sides. If you were of the opinion, for example, that people who say it's okay not to wear a mask are harming other people and they're out of their minds, you should know what the other side has to say so you can frame your arguments even with more strength. And that was always an operating principle for me within uh, reasonable barriers. But the reality for me has always been you do it as much as you can to as a responsiveness to what people need, what they want, and what they seemingly, I think for the most part, other than entertainment, um, feels important to them. And that's not only information, that's good citizenship, that's being enlightened, that's knowing the score as best you can tell the score without partisanship or too much of that. So you do have a larger sort of ambitious mission with your work with the radio. You feel that you're doing something important that, that can change the world? I don't know about changing the world. That's always sounded, frankly, pompous to me. But, um, but you know, we do take up issues that really have a great deal of impact. I mean, we were talking about climate change uh, long before. I take some obvious pride in this. Uh, it became the kind of burning issue it is to many, not to 
enough in my judgment, but uh, certainly to many people, especially here in the Bay Area. Uh, other environmental issues, we were always very keen on bringing to people's awareness. Uh, and there are many things that I could cite like that. Now, how valuable are these kind of programs? I don't know. What kind of impact have they had? It's very difficult to measure. You don't know what the yardstick is. You don't know what the metrics are. But it felt important to do those kinds of programs early on and bring them to people's awareness without getting up on the high horse or the soapbox. Right. It was just important. To me, it was important at any rate. That's got to do something, right? I mean, we all sort of are doing this, this, this public radio thing because we feel like it, it makes a difference in some way, right? It feels if we didn't have it, we would certainly be, live in a different community, I suppose. We would live in a different place. I know, especially when I announced my retirement, I, I knew, and when I left KGO, I knew this as well, that I'd had some real impact because people tell you, and people tell you sporadically through the years, but they especially tell you when you say you're leaving or when you uh, take your exit. That's uh, that's when people show their appreciation. That, that, that really goes to the heart, and that's very uplifting. Uh, there are people who have told me that hearing a program changed them and even changed their life. Uh, so you know you're making impact, uh, and certain programs obviously make more impact than others, but it's hard to measure. It's hard really to know. Well, and as you have announced your retirement and are now starting to hopefully get lots of good stories from people about the impact you've had on them over the last 27 years at KQED and then 10 years before that at KGO, um, are you, what do you plan to do after your retirement? Well, first of all, let me say, and, and this especially to anybody who may be listening who said kind and good and generous words, and it's been overwhelming. You know, you don't realize uh, a sense of gratitude or appreciation that people have, like I say, until you're ready. It's it's a little bit like, uh, I've used the metaphor, an athlete decides I'm going to hang up my cleats and it's time, you know. I mean, I'm 76 and <laughs> my wife's retired. I'm a grandfather now. Uh, I'm pretty much retired from teaching, although I've kept a hand in to some degree and may continue to do that. But there are things I want to write. I've had a book in the works for a number of years, the subject of which is honor and um it's a subject which interests me because i've tried for a number of years to figure out what is being an honorable person mean what is living an honorable life but also where do we separate it from uh, uh wanting respect or wanting recognition and uh those kinds of questions are kind of perennial questions and i don't know that they're going to interest a large audience but uh <laughs> we'll see so uh, I want to finish that, and I've, I've got another book that may be in a kind of fetal stage. Um, and um, more broadcasting. I'm not sure what that will amount to. Um, I've talked about the possibility of, uh, of some other things. Um, there are other ideas that have been proposed to me. So we'll see. But a daily program, as rewarding as it is and as much as uh, I found it satisfying, um, it can it can be um, uh, I, I don't want to use the word grind because that's that sounds too harsh but it, it it can be pretty taxing much more than people realize uh, and as someone who takes no small modicum of pride in having been through all these years I once said they could put on my tombstone he did his homework uh, of of doing homework to a great degree 
I, I think, you know, uh, I can see myself relaxing more and uh, taking it easy more, reading more. Of the, I, I, one of the things that I've regretted in this uh, uh, talk show role of mine is uh, I was always an omnivorous reader, but now I'm reading mainly either the books that I've taught before or that I want to teach because I've heard wonderful things about or that I want to put the authors on the air with, but it doesn't allow me the kind of freedom that I used to have to read just what I wanted to read or what I thought in an idiopathic way would be possibly meriting of or worth reading. So that's going to change. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, and thanks for all of the many, many conversations that I've been privileged to, to hear, thanks to you. Well, it was pleasant talking to you, and uh, I wish you the best in your broadcast career. Well, thank you so much, Michael, and all the best with your retirement. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Michael Krasny has hosted Forum on KQED since 1993. He recently announced that he will be retiring from the show in February. Forum can be heard live on KQED in the Bay Area from 9 to 11 every weekday morning and streamed on the web at kqed.org, where you can also find audio links of previous shows. It's also available as a podcast. I'm Alicia Bales. Thanks for listening to Byline Mendocino. I'll be back in one month with more local reporters talking about the news from Mendocino County. Two Fridays from now will be Christmas morning, and Gordon Black will play a special holiday edition of The Wondrous World of Music from 9 to noon. Stay tuned now for today's edition of The Wondrous World of Music. Fresh Air with Terry Gross coming up at noon, and National Native News at 1 o'clock. That'll be followed this afternoon by the Redwood Soul Shakedown with Selector J from 1 to 3. Have a good weekend and stay safe, everyone. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.